Welcome to Beyond the Practice Room, the podcast that bridges the gap between music and medicine. We are your hosts, Kaylee Miller and Janice Ying. Each episode, we will explore a different topic in musicians' health and wellness. Today's guest is Dr. Molly Gebrian, and in her own words, her bio was a violist who loves brains, but more importantly, with degrees in neuroscience and viola performance from Oberlin College, graduate degrees from NEC, as well as a doctorate from Rice University, Molly is now assistant professor of viola at the University of Arizona. And we actually met many years ago as studio mates, and you had your interest in neuroscience and music fun, and that interest and expertise has continued throughout your career. So with that, thank you for being here, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to, to talk to you guys about brains this morning. <laughs> it's, very, it's a very important topic, actually. I love brains. It is. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you have a really impressive resume, obviously. Um, so how did you really get into neuroscience and, like, kind of combining that with music? I'm actually really interested in that. Yeah, so um, when I got to Oberlin as an undergrad, I knew that I wanted to be a double degree student because academics had always been really important to me, but I didn't actually know what I wanted to major in. I have so many interests, like I considered majoring in, majoring in German language or history or English, like I really had no idea. Um, and then I took Oberlin had, and they probably still have a bunch of like small freshman only classes. And so I took a freshman only neuroscience colloquium or whatever it was called. And I was like, this, this is what I want to major in. This is like the most fascinating thing I have ever learned about. Um, and so that's how it got started at Oberlin. And it was really just for fun. I tell this story a lot and people always laugh, but, you know, I didn't have any plans to go on with neuroscience, to be a neuroscientist or anything. I just, I thought brains were fascinating. I just wanted to learn as much as I could. Um, and then when I left Oberlin to go to NEC, where I did my, my master's and my grad diploma in viola, um, you know, <clears throat> I thought, you know, no more neuroscience. That was fun. Like, whatever. I'm just a violist now. Um, but then my first semester at NEC, I felt really unbalanced in a way that I, I couldn't really put my finger on. I thought it was just, oh, I'm in a new city, you know, at a new school. I feel kind of weird. Um, but then my roommate at NEC, who had also been at Oberlin with me, um, she's a violinist. She participated in a study at Harvard looking at musicians versus non-musicians brains. And she came home from that and was, was telling me about it. And I got all excited and I was like, okay, this is why I feel so weird. Like I need to be a, a double degree student my whole life. But, you know, so then I started looking into um, NEC has a bunch of partnerships with Tufts and Harvard and Northeastern. So I started looking into could I take, you know, neuroscience classes at those schools while I'm studying at NEC. But the way the class schedule worked out with like orchestra and stuff, it just it just wasn't going to work. So at NEC, I did a number of independent studies looking into music brain stuff. Um, but then when I got to Rice, where I did my doctor in viola, I was back at a school where like everything was on the same campus and, um, I was able to take neuroscience classes again. So I took graduate level neuroscience classes at Rice pretty much the entire time I was there. I worked in a lab for a long time. I did a whole bunch of stuff at Rice. Um, but I never really like, 
I didn't plan to do what I do now, really. So what I do now is I do a lot of presenting and, and writing um, about issues having to do with with music and the brain. I, I knew that I wanted this to be, this brain stuff to be part of my career in some way, but I didn't really know how it was going to happen. Um, and then when I got my first college teaching position, which was at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, where I taught for five years, that's when I really started doing a lot of like presenting at conferences and, and writing, writing, writing papers for, for things. And, you know, people would see me present and they'd be like, wow, this is fascinating. Like, I wish my students knew this. Could you come present at my school? And it kind of snowballed from there. Um, and so now, yeah, I, I get to talk about brains all the time with, with people and it's, it's really exciting. Uh, one of the things I find really interesting is that we, yeah, I, we don't talk about practicing and how we practice nearly enough. And I guess my first question is, how were you taught to practice as a child? Yeah, I, I, I wasn't. I mean, I, I went through um, a Suzuki program that's one of the best in the country, the Heart School of Music in West Hartford, Connecticut, and I had fabulous, fabulous, fabulous teachers. But I didn't if I was taught how to practice it didn't register with me like I I did not know how to practice I didn't practice well as a kid I thought practicing was you play it through a bunch of times and then that's it um and it wasn't until I got injured in high school I got tendonitis when I was 15 and I had to take a whole summer off from practicing and then when I came back to practicing, I had to come back really slowly. I was allowed to practice two minutes on the first day and then four minutes the next day and then six minutes the next day. Like you can't do anything in two minutes, right? And so then I had to really start to learn how to be efficient and effective in my practicing because I had started really becoming serious about viola um, and about music. And then when I got to... When I got to Oberlin, Peter Sloak, my teacher there was phenomenal in really teaching me how to practice and, and good practice methods for things. And that was also concurrent with my neuroscience education. And I was learning all this stuff about how the brain learns. And I was like, wow, like <laughs> this has everything to do with practicing. I should use this information in my practicing. Um, and so, yeah, I wasn't explicitly taught how to practice, at least in a way that registered with me until like late high school and college. Hmm. And at its baseline level, what is practicing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because <laughs> I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what practicing is, yeah. right? Um, because like, I was a diligent kid, I was a smart kid. And I thought practicing was just like, play it through a bunch of times, right? But what practicing actually is, is figuring out, okay, what, what can I do? What can't I do? What problems am I having? And how am I going to solve the problems I'm having? You know, what, what can I try that will make it easier for me to play this? Or is it like a coordination issue? You know, just thinking kind of in a problem solving way, what's the problem here? How can I solve this? And then how can I solve it in a way that it stays solved so that when I go to my lesson, I'm not super embarrassed in front of my teacher because I can't play it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. It's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, exactly. I mean, I actually um, didn't didn't know a lot of this until actually my graduate work in physical therapy. And so, you know, before I was a musician, so, you know, I, like you, thought I knew how to practice. And then going through all the content for 
motor learning and neuroscience that we had to take, it actually made me a better piano teacher at the time um, with my students because I was able to apply all these things, all these concepts that I was learning in school that had nothing to do with music. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think if you could talk a little bit more about like the different types of practice in, um, you know, kind of how they can be applied in different settings and what one is good for and what another scenario might be used for, that would be great. Yeah. What do you mean specifically by different types of practice? Or kind of like the different modalities of practice. Like, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, kind of the repetitiveness of it or like picking certain excerpts or going back and forth. Uh, if you just run a piece, um, what, what kind of is the best way to practice? Right. Yeah. So everybody, it's funny, whenever I talk with students, they're like, okay, tell me like the perfect way to practice and the perfect practice schedule and I'll do it. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. There's no like perfect way to practice or one way to practice or best way to practice because it totally depends on what you're trying to do. Right. Um, and so, you know, if something is brand new and you can't do it at all, that's going to be a really different kind of practicing than, okay, you're three weeks out from your concert and you have to practice performing. Right. And so it, it depends on what you're trying to solve and it depends on, you know, what the issue is and what you're trying to solve. And so, you know, I always, I talk to my students a lot about practicing to the point that I think they get really annoyed with me because we talk about <laughs> it so much, but it's really important. So that's why we talk about it all the time, but I'm always asking them like, what, actually is the problem here? Is it that is it that, you know, your fingers don't know where they have to go? Is it that your ear doesn't know what it's supposed to sound like? Is it that you're too tight and so your body can't respond to what you're asking it to do? Is it because you're anxious about something coming up later in the music and it's it's getting in your way? Is it a fatigue issue, a mental fatigue issue or a physical fatigue issue? Um, and so the practice method that you use is dependent 100% on the problem you're trying to solve. I don't think that answers your question really. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's no one way to practice. And if you get too locked into like one way of practicing or one way of solving problems, it's going to work for you some of the time, but it's not going to work all of the time. And then you're going to get frustrated because this thing you tried before that worked really well for this problem you had on this passage previously, you know, it isn't working right now. And you think it means you, you know, you don't know what you're doing or you can't play it, but actually what it means is you just need a different practice method. Yeah. And I think what that means is in this context, blocked versus random, meaning like how the, the way that we're taught when we're like six or eight is just to kind of like run through the piece a million times and hope for the best. And then when the mistake happens, do it like I, you talk about this, but like, if you have a mistake, you're running the piece, maybe you start over again, maybe you do the mistake a couple times. Like basically what's the difference between running or blocked versus random practice? Right. Okay. So running through is not practice at all, unless you are close to a concert and you need to practice going from beginning to end without stopping and dealing with any mistakes that come up because there's going to be things that go wrong in your concert, right? And you're, you have to know how to deal with that. Um, blocked versus random practice is a totally separate issue. So blocked practice 
is the sort of repetitive practice that I think a lot of people think of when they think of practicing. So doing it correctly a certain number of times in a row or focusing on one issue or one section of your piece for a big, long chunk of time before you move on to something else. Whereas interleaved practice or random practice, those are synonyms in this case, is that you're switching more quickly and more often between the things you're practicing. So maybe instead of spending 30 minutes on this one passage, you only practice it for five minutes and then you go work on something else and then you go work on some third thing and then you come back to that first thing to check in um, again on, on how it's going. And so these two kind of practice methods, doing block practice versus interleaf practice, they have different purposes. So in order to learn a new skill, a certain amount of repetition is necessary, right? If you can do it right once, great, but that's no guarantee that you can do it right like every single time, right? Especially if you've done it wrong a bunch of times and then you get one that's right and you're like, oh yes, I can finally do it. No, actually you just got it right once and you got it wrong so many times that that is the, the motor program that's more sort of ingrained in your, in your body. Um, and in your brain. And so you need to do a certain number of repetitions so that you do it more times correctly than you did it incorrectly. And so that's where, where blocked practice can be helpful. That being said, when you go to perform something, you don't get to do things a bunch of times in a row until you're happy with it, right? You just have to get up on stage or, you know, if you're an athlete, you just have to, you know, go into your competition and you get like one chance, right? To do it how you want. And that is a really different thing for the brain. It's much more difficult for the brain to sort of remember everything it has to be aware of to do something correctly on the first try versus getting to try it out, you know, a bunch of times. And so interleaf practicing is a great way to test, are you ready for a performance? Um, so one of the things I like to do with interleaved practice is, you know, with a passage that I've worked on a bunch um, that I, I'm worried might not go well, but like, I feel like I really need to nail this in the concert. I will put on what's called an interval timer while I'm practicing, which it's a timer that goes off every, you know, however many minutes, seconds or hours you set it to. So it doesn't just go off once. It'll go off like every five minutes, for instance. And I will practice something totally different. My interval timer goes off. I stop what I'm doing and I go perform the passage I've picked out as if it's a concert. So no stopping, no matter what, any mistakes that come up, I have to deal with it, but I'm trying to do it, you know, as perfectly as I can so that I would be happy with it in a concert. Um, and what that does is it forces my brain to sort of deal with what it's going to feel like in a concert, but in the privacy of my own practice room. Um, so does that sort of answer what you were getting at? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the main thing that you are promoting, which I think everyone should promote, is critical thinking, understanding yeah. <laughs> why you're right. doing whatever it is you're doing, as opposed to just randomly running things. Because I think that's what we're all taught to do as kids. And, and Molly and Janice, if you remember back to your collegiate days, I very distinctly remember having adjacent practice rooms to people that were running things perpetually <laughs> right. in a way yeah. that didn't make yeah. sense. Nope. <laughs> yeah. And when I hear that now, like I I'm tempted to go like to go knock on the door of the student and be like, <laughs> you know, you're wasting your time. Right. I rarely do. I do that. I have done that. Like, especially if a student is like practicing outside and I like pass them on the way into the building, if it's a student I know well, and you know, they've heard my practicing talks, I, I will be like, 
you know, you're wasting your time. Right. And they kind of look at me like, oh my gosh, I can't <laughs> believe you just said that to me. But yeah, it's, if you're just running through stuff mindlessly, like you might as well not practice. It would be more beneficial not to practice than to just run stuff through and not fix your mistakes. Cause you're just reinforcing those mistakes when you do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- yeah, I think if I were a student and a professor knocked on my door and told me that I would be I would just die. I, I would be so mortified. I would just I, I would just die. <laughs> but maybe for the better. I don't know. I, I think it's it's hey. very useful information <laughs> that I definitely wish I had earlier. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely. But it's interesting. And and I think what this also transfers to is that if you're learning anything, whether it's movement or you're studying or whatever, you you will get more benefits if you move between the tasks, I think, to some degree. Like if you try to cram while you're studying, that is a slightly different topic, but similar in the sense that your brain is not going to digest all that information in an effective time. Or if you just decide to do all of your studying in like huge three-hour chunks as opposed to working with frequency and different times of the day and so forth. Right. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And if you want to talk more about that now, we can talk more about that now or we can wait till later. It's up to you guys. You guys are in charge. Sure. sure. You, you've got all the research and knowledge. Just just keep dropping knowledge for us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, this I, what you said about like, you know, if you practice or if you study for a big three hour block, it's not going to be as effective as like, you know, doing like an hour today and an hour tomorrow, whatever. And that is absolutely true for anything you want to learn. And this is stuff that scientists have known since like the 1880s. This isn't new information. (laughs) And yet we like don't know anything about this. It it seems like really counterintuitive to us. Um, And I actually started getting really into this research over quarantine because I, there were certain aspects of this research that I had always wanted to do practicing experiments on myself with, but like the nature of an experiment is you don't know what the outcome's going to be. And if I do a practicing experiment on myself and it backfires and then I can't play in my concert, like that's a big problem, right? But there's no concerts right now. So I can do, I can, you know, do an experiment on myself. And if I totally can't play my music, like it's fine because I can't perform for anybody right now. Um, so anyway, this idea of spacing out your practice, this research is called spaced learning um, or spaced practice. Basically, it seems to be a fundamental principle of learning for every living thing that learns that you will learn more information more quickly with less effort and you will retain it for longer if you space out your study sessions or your practice sessions, either within a day or over many days or over many weeks. And the, the counterintuitive thing about this is when we're studying and when we're practicing, we think that is when learning happens. But actually, learning happens when we are not actively practicing or studying, which is like the weirdest thing ever, right? <laughs> right. But the, the reason for that is, so like an elemental definition of learning is change changes happening in your brain. In order for something to stick with you long-term, changes have to happen in your brain. Your brain has to physically reconstruct itself in small ways and in big ways for things to stick with you. And that reconstruction cannot occur while you're actively using the parts of your brain that are involved in that skill or that knowledge. So the, the analogy I use is 
if the road needs to be repaired in some way, you can't have people driving on the road and repair the road at the same time, right? You have to (laughs) shut down the road, do the road repair, and then open up the road and then people can drive on it. And so it's the same thing with the brain. When you're actively using it, the brain can't reconstruct or repair or whatever. It needs time to rest when you're not using it, then it can do what it has to do so that when you come back to study or practice again, that reconstruction has taken place and you're you're able to go further with whatever it is you're trying to learn. And so when you do a three-hour practice session or a three-hour study block, the learning doesn't actually happen until you're done. Um, but if you, you know, if you study today for an hour, and then you don't study again until tomorrow, all that time in between, your brain gets to do the reconstruction it has to do. And so you will start basically at a, a level of higher knowledge when you come back tomorrow to, to study or practice or, or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, the secret to learning faster and better is take more breaks, which is like the weirdest thing <laughs> in the world. Um, but it's backed up by so much research. So you can trust it. I think that makes perfect sense. And the the way I always imagine it is if you are thinking in a fitness context, let's say you want to work out your upper body, hopefully you wouldn't just decide to do like one three hour upper body session <laughs> once a week. Oh God. I, I mean, I don't know, maybe you do. But, and then hope that that would have transference into all the rest of your life. You would say, okay, I'm going to do this two or three times a week. I also need to give, literally give my body a rest so that I'm not overly uh, straining those tissues. And then if you're learning a new movement, let's say you've never picked a weight over your head, you also need to do that a couple times and then take a break. You're not going to just do 40 reps all at once. You're going to do five and then you're going to go do something else. And then you're going to do it again and then you'll go do something else. And like most models in fitness do the same style of practicing or learning just because your body gets fatigued, but it's also neurologically advantageous, which I think is super obvious. And yet no one has ever made that connection for me. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, I think it's one of those things where, um, it's, it's so intuitive that it's not, if that makes sense. (laughs) But I, I think, so kind of talking a little bit about, you know, breaking things up and, um, you know, trying to come back at different points is, is that the same as chunking or is that different? Um, so feel free to elaborate on what chunking actually is. Um, but sure. How, how does that apply to the learning process? Right, right. So chunking is a totally different thing, but chunking is also really important when you learn. So let's talk about chunking. So chunking is taking what initially seemed to be separate pieces of information and putting them together in some kind of what I call like a packet of of information that's sort of unified in some way. So the the example I often use is phone numbers. So if somebody gives you their phone number and they live where you live and they have the same area code as you and they have the same prefix, right? The first three numbers after the area code, you don't remember the area code as three separate numbers. It's just so I grew up in Connecticut. The area code there is 860. Like I don't have to remember eight What's that second number? Is it six? Is it five? Right. You just know 860. That's the, that's the area code. And so you've chunked those three numbers into one piece of information, which is that is the area code for where I grew up. But if I, you know, if I tell you my area code and you're not from Connecticut, like those three numbers are not a chunk for you. You have to remember them as three separate numbers. Um, 
So when we chunk information, we put separate pieces of information together into one meaningful unit, it's easier on our brains because first of all, it's less information, right? With the, with an area code, it's one thing now rather than three numbers. Um, but also when you chunk information, very often it helps you connect that information to information you already know, things that you already know about mm -hmm. the world or whatever. And anytime you can connect new knowledge to knowledge you already have, you're going to be much more likely to remember it. And so with music, um, part of the reason we spend so much time studying technique and music theory and aural skills is because it helps us create chunks. So an example of a chunk is a D major scale, right? If you've been studying music for a while, you know what a scale sounds like. You know that D major has two sharps in it. You know what the notes are. You know the order of the notes. You don't have to think, okay, D, E, gosh, what comes next? I have no idea, right? It's just <laughs> D major. But when you were a kid and you learned D major or whatever your first scale was the first time, like that was a difficult question, right? What comes next? You, you don't know because they're separate notes. You don't have it as a chunk. And so the, the more chunks we have and the bigger our chunks can be, the easier it is on our brain because it's, it becomes less information because we're putting separate pieces together into, into one big piece, basically. And so that is also really important for learning because it makes it easier for our brain. Got it. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And one of the things I uh, think of, actually, there was a teacher, there still is a teacher, who, as I recall, does not teach their students normal scales and thinks that scales have no value. And there's something really interesting to me, which is that rather than just teaching hand frame or intonation or whatever, scales are actually a foundational thing for transference. So if you're doing Don Juan and you've worked on some scales, you have something that will jump right into some of those runs rather than just learning scales for scale sakes, which is also other values. But but thinking of technique as something that has that potential to connect with other repertoire and give you a foundational connection. Yeah, totally. I mean, like I talk to my students all the time that, you know, technique, the reason we spend so much time studying technique and theory and oral skills for that matter and history is in the service of the music we're playing, right? If technique had no bearing on the music we perform, nobody would study technique, right? It would be a huge waste of time. But like you say, it's it's a foundational aspect that makes learning repertoire way easier when you can realize, oh, those really fast runs, they're just a bunch of D major scales. Like that's not so bad, right? Versus random notes. I mean, if you think about learning some really contemporary piece that has these super fast I'm going to say quote unquote scales because they're not major scales. They're not minor scales. They're just, they, they can feel like a bunch of random notes that is so much harder to learn because you don't have any chunks for that. And you have to think about every note individually versus, you know, really fast runs in something like by Mozart or whatever, where they're all like major or minor scales. That's much easier to learn because you don't have to think about each individual note. Yeah. And I think in a way, that's also maybe a suggestion that we should diversify the scales that maybe we could go beyond, <laughs> go beyond flesh, literally, but like go beyond the Carl Flesh book and learn some other things. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Peter Slowick has this fantastic exercise called Pick Four um, that he made us all practice that's based on different finger patterns um, that I, I make my students learn as well. And Basically, once the pick four numbers are automatic chunks, 
you can like anything that is scale based. It doesn't have to be a major scale or a minor scale or any kind of recognizable scale. You can use the pick four numbers and it makes it so much easier to play. I'll never forget when I was living in Boston, I was playing in um, BPO Boston Philharmonic Ben Zander's orchestra there. We did um, Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. And at the end of the fifth movement, there's a page in the viola part that's like these really fast scales. Oh, I don't know, Taylor, yeah. if you've played and they're it. Quiet and, they're, <laughs> and they're Ponticello and weird. Yeah. Yeah, right. And it's this whole page and it's really fast. And I'd never played it before. And I remember our principal saying to us, you guys don't bother to actually like learn the notes. Nobody actually <laughs> like plays this. It's just an effect. But I like every single one of those scales are just pick four patterns. And so I could play it easily. And I'm not trying to like brag like, oh, I'm amazing or whatever. But, you know, the reason I think that page is so hard for people is because they don't have any chunks. And if you have no chunks and you're looking at every single note, yeah, it's like impossible to play. But if you look at it in terms of, finger pattern chunks, it's not, it's not any harder than if the whole page was just like D major scales up and down. Sure. Yeah, instance. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. And so once again, break it down into the yeah. pieces, make right. the connections. Right. Yep. Let's shift gears a little bit. How does the metronome affect our practicing? Cause I, I love your video on this and this, this once again goes to this kind of like default practicing where you're working on something over and over again, you always play it with the metronome, then you perform it without the metronome and it's a complete disaster. And the, you know, the mental dialogue is, but I did it with the metronome. Why is there a problem? So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Cause I, I think what you have to say about it is fascinating. And yet nobody ever talks about this. Yes. Let's talk about metronomes. I love my metronome. So when I read this research that you're alluding to that I'll, that I'll talk about, I was like, my, was, my mind was like blown, but it explained so many things. And so basically what the research shows is that when the metronome is on and it's, you know, clicking on, on every beat and you're playing along with the metronome, it's one set of brain structures that are activated. But when there's no metronome, it's a different set of brain structures, which is activated and which are activated. And the, the brain structures that are activated when there is when there's no metronome on are the ones that are involved in the self-pacing and timing of movements. When you have to figure out how to time things out and pace out your movements in a way that's steady and even and you know whatever you're going for. But it's a different set of brain structures when you have to do that yourself versus when there's something external helping to pace you. And so the reason why you can practice with a metronome and you're like amazing and then you go perform and you're like, it's like a disaster and you're all over the place is because if you only ever practice with a metronome, those parts of the brain that you're going to need when there's no metronome don't get to practice. And so the very first time they get to do their job is when you step on stage and they freak out and they're like, wait, hold on. Like, we've never done this before. How in the world are we supposed to do this? And there's all these people staring at me like this is terrible. Right. And so you know, some people perform with a metronome, right? If you're a session player in LA and you have a click track in your ear, you get to perform with a metronome, but the rest of us don't. And so you need to use the metronome in a way that helps those parts of the brain get to practice what they're going to have to do. But you still want to have the objective metronome telling you if you're right or wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I do to sort of wean myself off the metronome is, yeah, I will start, you know, if I'm learning something, I will start with it clicking on, on every beat. Absolutely. Just, you know, make sure, okay, can I stay with the metronome? Um, 
but then I start systematically removing beats. So instead of clicking every beat, I'll have it click every other beat. And then maybe just once a bar on the downbeat, for instance, or once every two bars or once every three bars. And so the, the clicks of the metronome are getting further and further apart. When there's no metronome clicking, those parts of my brain have to activate themselves and keep me steady. But then the metronome will click, you know, after four bars to tell me like, am I still with it? Yes or no. Um, and since I learned about that research and started practicing this way, my sense of pulse and timing has improved dramatically. It works really, really well. I think that makes sense. And I, I mean, it's just interesting once again that we were never taught about this as children uh, when, when it would have been really helpful or even just activities with your teacher in a lesson where you can work on that with clapping or whatever, just different ways of engaging different parts of your brain. Right. No, totally. And I think that, I mean, I think the reason we weren't taught this is I don't know that anybody realized this until you could put somebody in an fMRI machine, a machine that mm. shows what areas of the brain are active when you're doing something or not doing something. I don't think anybody realized this until we actually put people in a brain scanner and saw like, whoa, it's like different parts of the brain because it's not, I don't think it's necessarily intuitive. And I don't think you can necessarily like, you can't feel what your brain's doing, right? You can't feel like, oh, this part of my brain is active now. And this part of my brain is active when I'm doing this other thing. Right. And so I don't, I don't know that we knew this until relatively recently. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting if we expand that onto just motor learning in general. So if we think about the things that we know about motor learning is the amount of feedback that we receive. So metronome can be used as a form of feedback. And so the more feedback that you have, maybe in the beginning is very valuable and then just weaning off because people become reliant, reliant on that feedback. And I, I'm pretty sure that's kind of what you're alluding to with the metronome is uh, using different parts of your brain or expecting some kind of feedback, but not really, if you don't get it, how does your brain process that part of it? Right. No, that's a, that's a really great point that, you know, and with, it's, it's really interesting with the metronome specifically, because there's, there's different sort of motor pathways in the brain in terms of like the sequence of events of, okay, which brain, which part of your brain is active and it passes the information off to this other part of the brain. And when there's something external helping you move in, in, in a timed out way, it's sort of a different sequence of, of brain activation than if you're right. doing it totally internally. And, you know, the, another thing that I just thought of with what you said about getting feedback from something external is practicing in front of a mirror. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I played with a crooked bow until grad school. When I got to NEC, Carol was like, okay, <laughs> this is not okay. Like, <laughs> you can't play with a crooked bow as a grad student. Um, we have to solve this. But, you know, and I knew I played with a crooked bow. Like, I'd been yelled out about this since I was a kid. And everybody told me, you know, practice in front of the mirror, make sure it looks like it's straight. And I, of course I did that, right? But you don't have a mirror when you perform. Mm -hmm. And so I would be able to play with a perfectly straight bow in front of the mirror. And then I'd go to my lesson or I'd go on stage with no mirror. And I, 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 I didn't know what feedback from my body I was supposed to be paying attention to because when I would right. practice in front of the mirror, I was paying attention to the visual feedback and I was, I didn't realize I was ignoring the, the physical feedback, but I was right. And so it wasn't until I became really aware of that, that feedback from my body and what I was feeling in my arm and the feedback I was getting from my instrument in terms of sound 
that I really figured out how to play with a straight bow because I was paying attention to the wrong feedback in the practice room. That is super fascinating. It makes complete sense, but even interesting, like from a beginner standpoint, you have children that tend to look at their fingers going on the tapes when they're first learning how to use their left hand for a string instrument. And at some point, they have to trust that their fingers even just know to, to go down, like the first finger, I know which finger that is, um, or yeah. that they know where it is. And so it's a really interesting thing is that when we train kids to exclusively look at their fingerboard, that's in some way actually altering their ability to proprioceptive where they are in space to so just know, like, my finger, my first finger went down, I'm on the D string, like, some of that, I, I think it's the exact same concept on like a really introductory baseline level. It's just are you making a connection between what you hear and what you feel? Are you making a connection between what you see and what you feel? Can you start to play with this different sensory input to have, I would say, like a more inclusive awareness of what you're doing? Yeah, totally. 100%. And when I teach, when I teach little kids and, you know, before I was a college professor, that's what I, you know, I taught, I taught little kids all the time. I would always make sure that we spent time towards the beginning of their learning, practicing with their eyes closed mm -hmm. um, so that they had to rely on feedback that wasn't visual. And kids always, first of all, they think it's really fun. Like, oh, I get to play my violin with my eyes closed. <laughs> and, and, and second, they always thought when I would say, okay, let's play a game. We're going to try to play, you know, your song with, with your eyes closed. They'd be like, I can't do that. I'm not gonna be able to play. I'm like, yeah, that's why it's a game, right? We're just going to try. And of course they could do it, right? But they were always surprised that they were able to actually play without looking. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really, really important that from a very young age, we are encouraging kids to use different modalities in terms of, of feedback coming from all of their senses. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also really important just, uh, to develop the robustness of our feedback system as well. I know I was going to say too, is like a, as a movement teacher or a clinician, you want to also have the client start to make those connections in, in the same way that they can feel when something is, is, you know, different than when you're palpating or, or start to make those same connections in their body. Yeah. I think that's something that I think about a lot. Um, cause I do treat, uh, patients with Parkinson's, uh, and so, you know, metronome, using a metronome is actually something that we integrate um, and based on literature and based on research is, has been shown to be very effective where, you know, if they have some kind of freezing gait where they get stuck and they can't bring their foot forward, um, you know, using a metronome, some kind of external feedback or external cue has been shown to be very effective to keep them from doing that. And I think, you know, I think motor learning in general, it doesn't matter if you're talking about music or neuroscience or like a neurologic patient or, you know, we, we all, our brain is still a brain at the end of the day. And so all of these concepts can be applied with a, through a wide range, a wide range of uh, settings. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's funny you bring up Parkinson's because when I when I do my practicing presentations and I talk about the metronome, I talk about Parkinson's um, because it's when you, when there's an external source, sorry, I'm saying this backwards, when you have to, when you have to pace out your, your movements internally, and there's no external source like a metronome helping to, to pace you out, the, the part of the brain that starts that sort of motor cascade is the part that's damaged in people with Parkinson's, which is why they experience freezing of gait, right? And they can't like move. And I, when I, 
when I was in Wisconsin, I taught a class on, on music in the brain and we, we would talk about Parkinson's patients. And I would always show this video that's on YouTube of this elderly gentleman who has Parkinson's in his kitchen with his, with his home nurse, or I'm not sure who she is, but she's definitely a, um, some kind of, um, healthcare aid for him. And he's, he has a walker and he's walking around his house, like barely, he's like shuffling his feet. It's really painful to watch him walk. He can barely, barely walk. And then she turns on music, which is also, as you know, I'm sure known to help Parkinson's patients move more easily because it's an external thing that helps them pace out their, their walking. And this same gentleman, he's almost literally dancing around his house. It's like, he's a completely different person. The minute you turn on the music and like, whenever I show this in my class, first of all, the students gasp, but a bunch of students start tearing up and I do too. It's just so remarkable how he is transformed when music turns on and there's this sort of external source of, of timing and pacing to help him walk. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite, one of my favorite patients that I have worked with for years, um, she came in and was talking about the musical Hamilton and how she loved that musical and how she just, she had just (laughs) seen it. And so we actually, one of our favorite things to do was uh, have races around the clinic and so I got my phone out and we were bla- literally just blasting the Hamilton soundtrack as we were racing around the clinic. And, um, you know, just and, and you can apply it to a lot of different things because and I know we're getting off on a tangent, but um, but, you know, like a lot of people with Parkinson's, they have difficulty with maneuvering around uh, corners or churning or um you know, if you get to a crowded area um, with a lot of people, even though they might not be close by or be a danger to, you know, pushing, bumping into them, um, these these patients have a tendency of what we call freezing in uh, the Parkinson's world. Um, and so, you know, having her practice all those skills, but with an external cue um, ha- was amazing and she was able to do it quite well. So, um, yeah, it, it's just one of those areas that, I, I always, um, you know, try and integrate, but then also, like we were talking about earlier, trying to decrease the amount of feedback so maybe they can become less reliant on the actual external cue, but um, kind of integrate all the different things at the same time. Yeah, totally. I love that Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> it was really fun. People were staring at us because, I mean, be, me, me being like a musician slash clinician, um, I do a lot more crazy stuff than my uh, counterparts. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, we have a lot of fun in the clinic and people just stare at us and it's fine because I don't really care if they stare at us or not. <laughs> That's awesome. One last thing I was going to ask about was just mental practice. And I know there's a lot of different um, components of this, but, um, you know, mental practice is something that I talk to my patients about, especially if they're musicians. But again, I think it applies to all like skill acquisition. Uh, so could you just talk about mental practice a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I think mental practice is amazing, but I didn't always think it was amazing. When I <laughs> when I got tendonitis in high school, like I was talking about, you know, like teachers and, you know, people would say to me at that time, because they knew how little I was able to play, they were like, oh, you must mental practice all the time. And I would be like, yeah, of course I do. But I was like, no, I don't. Like, why would I do that? You know? Um, 
but then I, when I finally learned about mental practicing, I was like, gosh, I was so stupid. Like I, I should have done mental practicing. This is incredible. So basically what, what mental practicing means, because whenever I talk about this, musicians are like, well, what do you actually mean by mental practicing? Um, it means feeling and hearing inside your head everything you need to be aware of when you actually play your instrument, but without actually doing it. Um, and I, I can elaborate on that if you want, but the, the research on it is amazing because that, you know, they'll put people, they'll put musicians in a brain scanner and they'll have them play something and then they'll have them mental practice the same thing. And you find that it's the same areas of the brain that are activated when you're actually playing versus when you're just doing it mentally. And so that's why it works because it's sort of exercising the same parts of the brain. And every, every study that I've always, that I've ever read on mental practice says at the end, something to the effect of mental practice seems to be more effective when used in concert with physical practice than just physical practice alone. So you're going to improve more at whatever you're trying to get better at. If you combine physical practice, actual practice with mental practice, than if you only do physical practice and you never mental practice, um, because when you mental practice in order to, for instance, you know, as a string player to be able to feel without doing it, okay, which finger is going down? What order are my fingers going down in? What's my bow doing? Can I feel this happening at the same time? You have to really understand what is supposed to be happening. And you have to have a really clear mental concept of what's supposed to be happening in order to feel those things without doing the movement. And being able to clarify that in your head so you can feel it without actually doing it, then when you actually do it and you have all the feedback from your instrument, it feels much easier because the feedback is so much richer, right? And so it's it's just easier for you to do it because you've clarified your mental concept without all of that feedback coming from your instrument. Got it. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's mental practice to me is really fascinating because I know that uh, at least from the literature that I've read about it, a lot of it kind of got started from the sports literature, the sports world, and how um, you know athletes acquire a skill or kind of how they apply different um, skills to different conditions. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, visualization is usually what, what athletes call it. And that is such an, such an important part of every athlete's elite athletes training. Anyway, I think maybe with kids, maybe not, I don't know. I wasn't athletic growing up, but you know, whenever you read about like coaching or athletic training or, or anything, visualization is as important a component as, you know, conditioning and cross training and like whatever, whatever else you're going to do as an athlete, that that is an integral part of, of their training and their practice. Whereas for musicians, I feel like it, it's not emphasized in the same way and that we're not talked to about it. And, you know, people can go through their whole education and nobody's ever talked to them about mental practicing, what it is, how to do it, why they should be doing it. Right. And so it hasn't made its way into music education in the way that it's made its way into, into sports coaching and, and athletic skill acquisition. 
Yeah, and what's also interesting to me is that it should come up earlier in our education, especially in conservatories, because you're juggling a lot of repertoire. And like the way that it's helped me is predominantly as an orchestral musician, because I have to learn a program of music every week, sometimes more. And it's way more efficient if I've spent some time without shredding on my instrument and just figuring out what I'm doing, what's the piece, what's my plan, what's the fingerings, if it's a complicated piece, do I have a good rhythmic plan? Like working on all of those things completely devoid of the instrument solves so many problems for me and prevents fatigue. And yet we don't really talk about it unless somebody's injured, I think, most of the time. Oh, totally. Yeah. It usually only comes up in, in, in the context of injury. You're absolutely right. And I think that I think a lot of people think that children will not be able to do it, which is why it's not taught. Like people are always surprised to hear that like, oh yeah, I talk to my, when I teach kids, I talk to them about mental practicing all the time. And I have the mental practice things and lessons and it's, it's effect, it's effective with kids and with some kids, I'll never forget this little boy that I taught when I lived in Germany. He was, I think he was in fourth grade at the time. And he was one of those kids that like, he, everything he did was just like fast, 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 like as fast as he possibly could. Right. And so when he would play, it was like the sloppiest thing you've ever heard because he was trying to play at a million miles an hour and he just couldn't, right. He just couldn't play it that fast. And every lesson it was like, play slower, play slower, play slower, you know, and you know, I could never, ever get him to slow down. And so then one lesson, and I find actually with kids, it's sometimes more helpful instead of asking them to like feel it inside their head or something is to have them look at a blank wall and imagine it's a big like movie screen or a TV screen. And they they're watching themselves play it on TV. And like, can they see their bow moving on TV? Can they see their fingers moving like in the right order on TV or whatever? And so with this kid, he was working on um, the happy farmer from the end of, of Suzuki book one. And I had him, I was like, okay, I want you to do this part, but see yourself on the TV. And, you know, I sort of talked him through exactly what I wanted him to see and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he was like staring intently at the wall in my teaching room. And then he was like, okay, yeah, I can see myself on the TV. And I was like, okay, on the TV was everything like really clean. And, you know, like we, we talked about in his lesson, he was like, yeah, it was awesome on the TV. And I was like, okay, can you play it now? Just like you played it when you were on the TV. And it was the cleanest playing he has, he had ever done. And he turned to me in like amazement and he was like, I can control my brain. And I was like, wait, can you, I, it made me tear up. And I was like, I can't cry in front of this fourth grade boy because he's not going to be able to handle it. And I was like, can you tell me what you mean? He was like, yeah, when I play all the other times when I play, like, I don't know my brain, I can't, my brain just does it. I can't. I can't control it. But he was like that time, like I was in control of my brain. I told my fingers and my brain what to do. And it was, it was such a powerful teaching moment. Um, And so like literally every lesson after that, we, he would watch himself on the TV. Right. And then he, and then he would play it. And I think it was really empowering for him also to realize like, he has control over his whole, his own brain, right? His body isn't just like doing whatever it wants, whenever it wants. He has control over that. That's amazing. Wow. And that's such an amazing gift to give to children that are learning how to just be in their body. Totally. <laughs> so to, to kind of wrap up, how do you teach, I think children in general, but how do you teach your students to practice? And I know you have college students and you've had children that are very young and beginners, but how do you kind of, wrangle this as a teacher with the body of knowledge that you do? 
Right, yeah. So with my college students, um, like my practicing presentation that, you know, I do in person, but now is a series of YouTube videos, all of my students have seen that at this point, like so many times they could do the presentation. And so like, you know, just like that stuff, the, the presentations I do, they've seen them a million times. Um, but also in their lessons, we are always talking about like, how would you practice this? What are good methods to practice this? Every year in studio class we do, uh, I don't know if I should call it a project or what, where everybody has to videotape themselves practicing for five to 10 minutes. And then we watch them together and critique them in studio class. And my students are always horrified, even though they know what's coming, right? They're always horrified <laughs> by this assignment, but they always say, this is the most helpful thing we do in studio class. Um, is is watching videos of people practicing. And I do it too. I, I video myself practicing and we watch my practice video. Um, and so that's how I that's how I talk to college students. With kids, it's a little bit different. Um, so especially with younger kids, I I all these, you know, things I know about the neuroscience of learning and you know good practice methods, I made every single one of them into some sort of game. And so I would introduce them to students as, hey, we're going to play this game. Here's the rules, blah, blah. And they, you know, but they were relying on these, these principles of, of learning. And students, first of all, enjoyed the game. So that's good because they wanted to play them. But they also would connect that, oh, when I play this game, I get better in this specific way at this specific problem. And I would have kids, you know, as I had a four-year-old once play me you know, something that she was working on. And at the end, she looked at me and she said, very seriously, Miss Molly, we need to play the dice game with that part because I didn't play it very well. <laughs> and she was absolutely right. That was the right game to play with that part that she kind of missed when she played her little song for me, you know? And so kids learn to connect these games with the problems they solve. And then, you know, I've had kids say, am I allowed to play these games at home? And I'm like, yes, that's the point. Please play them at home. Um, you know, and so playing games with kids and then also, you know, students that, have studied with me for a while, kids that have studied with me for a while, um, as they get older and as we've sort of played these games and I've modeled these ways of practicing in their lessons, when they have something they need to work on at home, I'll say, okay, how are you going to practice this? And often they'll say, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, well, when we had this same issue, you know, in that other piece you did three weeks ago or whatever it was, like, how did we solve that problem? And they'll be like, oh, we did this and this and this. And I'm like, do you think that would work for this place? And they're like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, helping guide them through what, what would work. Um, one of my students that I started, I started teaching her in second grade in Germany, and I'm still teaching her on Skype, and she's now in 10th grade. Um, you know, I can ask her, okay, how are you going to practice this? And she will give me a list of things. And I'm like, yep, that's exactly what I would do. I don't have anything to add. That's fantastic. You know, it used to be when she was younger, when she was like in middle school, she would be like, well, I'm going to do this. And she'd list maybe one or two things, which were great things, but, but not enough. Right. And so then I'd give her some other things. So as she studied, as she has studied with me over the years, she is more able to connect, you know, this problem with, with this, with the solution. So that's, that's how I go about it with different ages of students. That's amazing. That's and it's awesome. very useful. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely think that anyone who's listening should definitely check out uh, Molly's um, YouTube videos and some of the literature that she has on her website. Um, so I, I guess uh, if, if you could, Molly, just tell people like how to find you in the, the, the um, things that you have available for people to consume um, information wise. 
yeah, totally consume. It sounds like I have food. Like here you go. You get that's a, why you get I kind of clarified that. I was like, that didn't quite come out. Maybe I'm hungry. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you it's brain food. Brain food. That's right. <laughs> brain food. Um, okay. Brain food. So I'm really easy to find online because I'm the only Molly Gebrian in the world. Um, my name will be like on this podcast, right? Or should I say how oh, my absolutely. name is spelled? No, we'll have Okay, it. okay. Okay, okay. So if you if you do a Google search for my name, you'll find me. There's no other Molly Gebrians in the world. Um, on my, everything is on my website. Um, so I have all of my YouTube videos. So I have a series of five videos called What Musicians Can Learn About Practicing from Current Brain Research. Um, and that's both on my YouTube channel, which is just my name, and on my website. I have another series that's four videos um, about the science of uh, the neuroscience of memorization, also on my website and my YouTube channel. And then I have a series of three videos on how to practice specifically to play faster, because I get so many questions about that. Like, okay, you know, this passage has to be really fast. What do I do to practice it to get it to get it up to speed? Um, I'm going to be doing a new one. I keep saying soon, but I've been saying that since August. So maybe I shouldn't say soon anymore about this idea of spaced <laughs> practicing and sort of the experiments I did on myself over quarantine. I just haven't had time to sit down and actually make the videos, but those I really hope will be up soon. Um, and then also on my website, I've written a number of, of papers on these topics having to do with music and the brain. So those are all on my website as PDFs that you can download. All of the presentations also have a two-page like summary sheet PDF that's on my website that you can download. And they're all labeled, I think, in a way that makes it obvious what they are. And then I also have this eight-page PDF. It's called The Amazing List of Practicing Techniques. Um, and it's not like every possible way to practice under the sun, but it's it's the things that I find most helpful in my own personal practice, the things that I recommend to students the most often for practicing. Um, and yeah, it's eight pages of like things to do that are going to be productive to help you solve problems. They are roughly organized by like playing faster or working on intonation or whatever. Some of them are the way I talk about them in the PDF are string specific because I'm a violist. But I think that, you know, if you're not a string player, it will be easy to figure out how to apply it to, to your own instrument and, and your, and your own needs. Um, so yeah, but go check out my website. It's just my name, mollygebrian.com. And there's lots of stuff up there for people to consume. Excellent. And I, I actually have one <laughs> random last question uh, before we end. Is there anything that you are interested in learning more about in terms of music and the brain or you want research to be done on? Oh, my gosh. Liv, this is a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I asked. There, there, there are so many things that I that I want to be done. Part of the reason, actually, I did this experiment on myself with practicing is a lot of the research on spaced practice has been done specifically on like studying for tests, you know, mm. like for like a history test or vocabulary test, whatever. And there's less that's been done on motor learning, specifically complex motor learning. The most relevant research to us as musicians is research on surgical training, surgeons learning how to do whatever they have to do, because those are complicated motor skills that require a cognitive component, just like playing an instrument. Um, and so that stuff is really relevant to us as musicians, but I really, really, really want some really well-designed research on musicians and practicing over large periods of time. A lot of these things like are within a week and like, mm. come on, I'm a musician. I'm not going to practice something for one week and then go perform it unless it's like <laughs> really easy. Right. Or, you know, I'm in an orchestra and I have to learn new music every week, but definitely solo music. I'm not going to pick it up today and then perform it a week from today. Right. So yeah, that 
Uh, there's so much stuff. I could go on forever and ever and ever. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Just one, I, one set of I think things. that would be lovely. I, I think that's a separate question for another day, but I'm so glad that we had you. And I just am so grateful that we have stayed in contact for 15 years now. Yeah. And that you Me have too. such an amazing, literally, body of knowledge to share with people. And I want more people to know about the work that you're doing because it's so relevant. So important. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank Molly, you guys so your much. Time. Thank you for letting me talk about brains for an hour. It's like my favorite thing to do. So that's our show. Special thanks to Abby Swidler for composition and performance. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Maybe write us a review. You can find us at beyondthepracticeroompodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>